0: having a knowledgeable person providing an exceptional customer experience on the other end of that phone line or on the other end of that email um, is something that just wasn't prevalent in the automotive aftermarket at that time. So that's really all we did.
1: Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Master, the weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in-person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to use forums to get your first customers, the key to great customer service that will give you organic growth, and what is an entrepreneurial operating system and how to use one to scale up your business. Tim joined by Chris Carey from Modern Automotive Performance. Modern Automotive Performance manufactures and resells automotive performance products for select modern vehicles, and was started in two thousand and six, and based out of Cottage Grove, Minnesota. And has recently uh, hit revenues of twenty seven and a half million, and trending towards over thirty three million dollars for twenty nineteen. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. So you were fed up with the corporate world, which I think is a story that resonates with a lot of listeners out there, and decided to look for something new. And the new thing you're looking for was to start your own business. So first of all, tell us about where you began. Where What were you doing? in the, what, what kind of job were you working at at the time?
0: Job that I had before starting this was at Verizon Wireless and prior to that I did a lot of consumer electronics, uh, things, Circuit City, other wireless retailers and, um, basically got a background in what the customer experience should be like. Um, and then, yeah, really it was a silly, a silly thing that was the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, I guess, uh, in regards to why I decided to start a business because I actually didn't know any other business owners. I don't know exactly what uh, motivated me, but it was this meeting meeting. That the uh, my management had at my last job at six thirty in the morning, and it was about a half hour drive for me, and I am not a morning person, so um, that was the last thing that I kind of uh, I, I said, "This is it. I don't want to work for the man anymore, so to speak," and mm. uh, started to look at different opportunities that that I might take in the uh, entrepreneurial world.
1: Okay, so let's step into your shoes now. So th- you you were driving to this this meeting, uh, you know, grumpy, like this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. And you started looking around, like, what were you doing like that day or day after? Like, how soon after were you, was it before you started pursuing this, this seriously?
0: So there was a couple, uh, instances of that meeting and it was disciplinary in nature. Um, if we had a good week, we wouldn't have the meeting. If we had a bad week, we would have the meeting. And, um, it just, so I would go in at 6:30 for this meeting, drive back home, sleep for another couple hours, and then come back in for like a 12 PM to 8 PM shift. And it was just very taxing on me on that. It was a Friday. So those Fridays were not enjoyable. Um, and yeah, so at that point I, I was going to school at the university of Minnesota, uh, in just a general business course. Um, and maybe that had some, some influence. To it as well, um, but yeah, basically decided that that I didn't want to work for the man anymore, and I started to look at what options I might have to start my own business. And again, it's I don't know exactly why that was the course of action that I chose to take versus looking at maybe another job within the corporate world. But um, I started to look at what opportunities were there, and I really saw two. One of which would be to start my own third-party wireless retailer, as, as that's what I knew at the time, um, and that proved to be there were some pretty, uh, difficult barriers to entry in regards to I would need to have a retail space and a lease and I would have to have an agreement with the certain wireless carriers. Um, so that, that seemed pretty difficult and capital intensive. The other alternative was my hobby, my passion at the time, which was, uh, cars and automotive performance. I had a 1995 Mitsubishi Eclipse and this was round about the time the Fast and the Furious movie came out. And uh, I had a, actually a good friend of mine had a 1995 Ford Mustang with a five liter V8 in it. And we were always competing back and forth, you know, whose who's car's faster. So I was a consumer in this industry and um, realizing that there were some opportunities in regards to the customer experience, that it was pretty poor at the time uh, persistent back orders, products not being shipped, no tracking information being sent, couldn't get a hold of anybody. Um, And I felt if I could take what I had learned in the consumer electronics world and apply that to the automotive aftermarket, that that might be uh, a successful venture. And the other component of that option was the lower barrier of entry. I actually started this out of my house. I had uh, an acquaintance at the time build me a really bare bones website on I don't even know what platform now because this was over 13 years ago. And uh Bought some inventory with a credit card that I had and and actually had it in my closet in my master bedroom in a townhouse that I was living in at the time. So uh didn't have to worry about the real estate, the retail location, uh, just very low barriers of entry to to start a business in the automotive aftermarket. And that was my hobby and my passion at the time. And here we are today.
1: Yeah, so you were looking at opportunities that were there. And it sounded like you had a kind of a, a list, maybe not written down, but in your head of criteria for or what would make an ideal business for you? And you mentioned that the first option of having an independent uh, retailer business was capital intensive, was complicated. Did you have some kind of like what, what other things were you looking at that now looking back, uh, uh, you know, paid off that, that you kind of filtered your ideas through?
0: I think those were really the only two, either the third-party wireless retailer, because, again, that was what I was doing and what I knew. And then my hobby, my passion, which was vehicles um, or automotive performance. And that would be, obviously, as an e-commerce venture, something that I could do out of my house, something that I could do while retaining my existing job because I wasn't able to just drop everything and, and you know, start this new venture without knowing that it was going to be successful. So I continued to work full time while uh, starting this website and starting to participate in the community and look for where I might be able to find my first customers. So this was something I guess it would be, you know, 13 years ago. I don't know if side hustle or side gig was something that people talked about, but that was really how it started. Um, And then once I got traction, so we actually uh, opened the doors in July of 2006. And um, so I guess this is kind of contradictory to what I said earlier. We did actually rent a space in an industrial park. Um, Maybe I'll back up a little bit. I want to talk about, uh, uh, there's a a co-founder of mine that started the business with me. And uh, so his name is Kyle. And when I started, came up with this idea to start an e-commerce website, I did start the website. I did have some inventory in my closet uh, at my house and started to look for where I'm going to get my first customers. And that was very slow going. I didn't get a lot of traction at first. Um, I had to... I guess the approach that we took was was a little bit different. He was working on cars out of his garage at the time. And so I'm over here with an e-commerce website trying to sell parts to people while he's working on vehicles out of his garage and these are actually our target market or my target market in terms of who would buy parts for their vehicles. So we kind of just joked around, "Hey, you know, how about how about we open up a performance shop? I'll sell parts, you work on cars." And uh, we'll see how it goes. And I guess from there, we uh, decided that it was something worth at least looking into. We started to look at commercial spaces um, in the Twin Cities area here. And uh, ultimately, we found one that would allow us to have automotive lifts and something called uh, a dynamometer to uh, essentially measure the horsepower and torque of a vehicle. They uh, were agreeable to the noise that that machine would make, and and some other factors. And the next thing you know, I was signing a five-year lease uh, in this industrial park and opening the doors. And that was in July of two thousand six.
1: So, so you you wanted to I want to take a step back. So you wanted the the business that you chose to be manageable with your day job, like you mentioned, it's kind of like a side hustle, something that you can run on the side. When you did get get rolling, were there tasks or activities that then started to appear that made you realize like, wow, I can't necessarily just always do this uh, on the side. I'd have to go into this full time. Like, What started popping up that made you realize you had to take a leap at some point?
0: So yeah, we opened the doors in July of 2006, started working on vehicles for the local market, which was a very small portion of what would, would ultimately be our business moving forward, and started to look at how we can start marketing to uh, sell products to people via the e-commerce platform as that started to gain traction, I was continuing to work full-time at my job and I found myself answering emails, even taking phone calls from customers, uh, during the day while I was at my job and my, to, to give them credit, my, my managers at my full-time job at the time were very, uh, accepting and allowing of me to, to do this. Um, so that flexibility was awesome. But at, a point in time, which was actually February of 2007, uh, the volume became just too great. And at that point, I felt uh, at least some degree of confidence that I would be able to support um, my own personal expenses, et cetera, through uh, this new business entity. So I made the jump in February of 2007 and came on full time. And that's really when uh, things started to, to pick up and we really started to see uh, a lot of interest in in what we were doing.
1: So you weren't even hiding the fact that from your employer that you were trying to start your business on on the side
0: correct yeah they were they were aware of it and um you know when i when i ultimately made the leap i think they were uh, well it's sad to see me go they were happy that uh it worked out for me and so it was really i, I felt a lot of support from that group of people so that was really a nice experience
1: mm. okay so you mentioned that you had you guys have had a garage that the uh, was, I guess, a, a part of the, the the business. What was the benefit of having both of these things combined, both the garage and also the e-commerce business?
0: Yeah, so that's an interesting uh, story as well. Um, to jump significantly further forward, uh, I think it was about eight years after we'd been in business, we, we actually de- st- decided to stop working on vehicles. And that was probably one of the biggest decisions that we had to make in the course of our of our business here, because that's what the entire business was started on. Um, in July of 2006 to that February of 2007 point in time where I came on full-time, very little revenue was generated from the e-commerce component of the business. Almost all of the revenue was generated from uh, the repair labor or the installation labor that we were doing on the vehicles locally, and then some parts that we were selling to those customers that we were doing the work for. Um, it wasn't until early 2007 when we really started to get traction outside of the local market and into the greater, um, you know,
1: community. Right. So almost all the revenue was from the, the physical location and the service arm of the, the, the business. Did you find that, like if you were to go back, like, did you find that that was an important step to take On the journey towards building the business that you have today,
0: I, you know, I think it, I think it was an important step. Um, It it enabled us to test the market. Um, You know, we were able to generate some income to be able to make investments in regards to refining the website and starting to participate in the community and solicit customers and do some marketing, etc. So, I believe that it was, you know, and it certainly gave me time. To prove the concept that we were going you know this was going to be successful and I there was we mitigated the risk enough to the point where I was comfortable making that decision to leave my secure full-time job and come on full time in this new venture. So I do think it was important. Um, could I have done it without that component? Um, that's that's interesting. Um, you know the fact that we were, working on vehicles and we were installing and using some of the parts that we were trying to sell, um, you know, via e-commerce or those online automotive forums, uh, it certainly helped in, in regards to our perception of expertise and building rapport within that community. The fact that we were using these items ourselves. We also had, um, I had a personal vehicle that we would drag race. And so some of the achievements um, that we were able to uh, realize with that particular vehicle were things that we shared with the community. And I think that uh, took it even a step further in terms of building rapport um, and a, a perception of expertise.
1: Right. So like, building this kind of credibility with your, your with your market, I think, uh, is what you're getting at. It was really important for... For establishing yourself as a brand that people can trust in, and, and helped when you transition to e-commerce only. And I think, uh, I, I, unless I misheard you said, so you transition to e-commerce only after eight years into the business. Correct, yep. What was that transition like?
0: It was really difficult. So yeah, this was something that you know probably could have taken place years earlier. Um, so so we're eight years in business. We're still working on vehicles, and uh, at that point we're very frustrated for a number of reasons. Um, we had hit uh, roughly ten million dollars in sales, which proved to be a ceiling of sorts for us or, or an inflection point, point. Um, and we could not get through it. So I think for three consecutive years we basically were stagnant at roughly ten million in
1: revenue. And this ten million was the that- Predominantly from the 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 e commerce side or from the 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 the, uh, the labor side.
0: Predominantly from e commerce, and that that was the interesting part is that the labor side of things at this point in time was accounting for single digit percentage of revenue and probably ninety percent of the headaches that that we experienced within uh, the organization at that time. So looking back, uh, it was one of the better ideas that we ever made was to stop offering repair and installation services. Um, but it was just difficult to let go of because that's what we had always done. And that's what had certainly helped uh, launch the business from from the start.
1: Yeah, I think an important skill as an entrepreneur to have is to know when to to a give up on a, a product line, a service line, like something that you've been offering, especially after eight years in, it seems like such a it seems like such a, uh, a it seems like the business right a, a big part of your business to 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 cut out. So what lessons do you have here on on how to well actually before we get there how did you recognize that that would been the right that would be the right decision?
0: So at the time I guess we didn't know, you know, there were certainly advantages to having the repair and installation um, component of the business again with us being able to test products um, you know, any of the customers that came in to have repair installation services were buying products from our e-commerce store um, that we were then installing for them. Um, it, it, you know, so there was a lot of, uh, of positive aspects to it. But some of the negatives, again, as what I mentioned is uh, one of my favorite books is uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins. And one of the things he talks about is focus on what you feel like you can be the best in the world at. And what we realized is that we were pretty good at e-commerce. And also there's a manufacturing component of our business as well that we'll maybe get into a little bit later. We were really good at both of those things. What we weren't so great at was managing this repair and installation facility. And so if you were to look at online reviews at the time um, or some of the automotive forms in the local market any negative review that you found about the business at the time was almost certainly going to be related to a lackluster experience with repair installation. So, I mean, that's how we got, you know, that was kind of what made us aware that there was an issue is just simply the customer sentiment in regards to that component of our business. Um, And yeah, rather than trying to bolster that or trying to get better at performing these service and installation component of the business, we decided it's time to let this go. Let's put all of our focus and efforts into e-commerce and support that e-commerce with our manufacturing arm, which uh, is maybe another topic to discuss. That's how we believe that we're differentiating ourselves and adding value and shielding ourselves from some of the larger, pure e-commerce players that are out there. Um, for instance, Amazon, et cetera.
1: Okay, now how do you spin down a component of your business? Like, what would you have to go through and how long did it take to essentially end that part of the business? I think the
0: longest part of that process was simply making the decision. Um, you know, it was, it was long and arduous, and um, because there were actually a couple of uh, jobs that were lost in that transition. So we had a, a service writer and um, some technicians, et cetera. So by us making the decision that we were going to stop offering these services, um, that was going to mean some jobs were going to be lost. And that is always a difficult decision. So um, I think once the decision was made, it was pretty quick. You know, We stopped taking on new work and then simply finished the remaining projects that we had uh, internally. And really, like I said, focused our efforts on e commerce and manufacturing moving forward.
1: Now, when you first were looking at, at opportunities here, you mentioned that you saw a huge gap in regards to the customer experience with the automotive aftermarket. What did you recognize? Like, what was the gap, and what made you think that you would be able to fill it?
0: Naivety. You <laughs> know, I mean, that's um, yeah. confidence, maybe. You know, it's, it's just uh, knowing what I had learned in the consumer electronics industry and the customer experience that they were able to create, I just, I guess I knew that things could be better. Um, you know, the experience that I had as a consumer in the market would be to go on a website that was functional, um, you know, not necessarily perfect. Um, and this was 13 years ago. So, you know, I I don't know, my expectations were maybe (laughs) too high, but, um, the main issue that I would run into is after placing an order, there was one particular vendor that would give you no order confirmation, um, no indication if the product was in stock, no indication if and when the product had shipped. And so then naturally what you would have to do is reach out to them to ask them these questions. Hey, what's my tracking number? When should I expect this? And they were very poor in terms of responding. So, you know, you sent money to these people um, And you're not able to communicate with them. You have no idea whether the product is going to be shipped to you or when. Um, It was just a really frustrating experience.
1: And you said that the way that you get the first e-commerce customers was through uh, marketing or just being involved in the community on these car forums?
0: Correct, yep. Yeah, there were uh, a couple automotive forums that I was on from a consumer perspective. And at that point in time, they had relatively low cost um, sponsorship opportunities, I guess, and and uh, it wasn't necessarily like display advertisements or things along those lines that um, got us this initial traction. It was simply participating in the conversations that were already taking place. Um, you know, essentially trying to generate a perception of expertise, build rapport, and then ask for the sale. So, I mean, there there are already you know questions on there. What's the best? clutch for this application? What exhaust system should I be looking at? Where can I get this air intake from? Um, You know, those were kind of the the conversations that we would participate in. And that's where a lot of our our first sales came from. And then from there, uh, I I guess I mentioned in early 2007, we really started to see uh, a lot of volume start to come in. I believe that to be uh, attributed almost entirely to word of mouth. You know, we did when someone emailed us, we emailed them back. When somebody called, we picked up the phone. Um, when we received an order from someone, we gave them a tracking number. We gave them, uh, we delivered the product in a timely manner as, as best as we could control it. Um, sometimes having to rely on third-party distributors, but um, this, these were things that that were not normal in the automotive aftermarket at the time, and uh, certainly for the first, I mentioned eight years earlier, um, for the first. Several years in business, we didn't pay for any advertising or marketing of of any sort. All of our growth, um, which actually landed us on the Inc. 500 in 2011, I would attribute all of that growth to word of mouth based on uh, providing a significantly better customer experience.
1: Mm. So it was only like a year before you, after you started, before you saw an uptick in sales from uh, word of mouth.
0: So our first year in business from 2006 to – we started in July of 2006. To the end of that year, we only did something like 125,000, and that was almost entirely based off of repair and installation labor and then product sales to the local customers. 2007 is where we really started to see – traction, uh, in regards to e-commerce in general and the greater community within the United States, we did just shy of, uh, I think it was 965,000 in 2007. And then that was the start of this just huge wave to where we ended up in 2010 doing, I believe it was 9.6 million. So we did 10 X the sales in three years span. and that landed us on the Inc 500, the, uh, at number 403 in
1: 2011. That's amazing. And you believe you credit this to basically all word of mouth from, from like happy customers due to your customer service.
0: Yeah, at this point. So this was my first entrepreneurial venture. I didn't have any experience with this, you know, before. And so the thing that I was really hanging my hat on was what I had learned about, Customer service and the customer experience in the consumer electronics industry, and taking that and applying it to this automotive aftermarket. And so, you know, there were no other tools in my toolbox. I guess we, we did choose to enter the market as a low price leader. And so the combination of those two things by offering competitive pricing and a significantly better customer experience, I think that was the catalyst to get this rather tight knit community to then begin referring us to their friends. Uh, and, and it really just kind of took off from there.
1: And you mentioned that you got your first sales though, before this word of mouth kicked off, you got the very first initial customers by this, uh, by spending time in automotive forums and you generated this perception of expertise by answering questions and then asking for the sale. Can you talk to us about, about that, Talk to us through this. Like how do you gracefully transition from helping someone out to then asking for the sale?
0: Yeah, it's an, I guess it's an interesting um, scenario. It We were, at th- that point in time, in order to be able to, to do that, we had to be a paying sponsor on that automotive forum. So you would have an avatar of sorts, uh, you know, and a screen name, et cetera, where we could share our web address and it would say something along the lines of gold sponsor on the left side. So, you know, when, in the course of responding to a question about what is the best exhaust system or what is the best clutch for this application, we would respond and and try to add value. You know, here's what I think would be the best product for your particular situation. Here's why. And then at the end of that, um, you know, uh, advice kind of say, oh, by the way, you know, here's a link to our website if you're ready to purchase. And, you know, it's really as simple as that.
1: I'm sure there must be other competitors that were in there doing the the same thing so how did you differentiate yourself from 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 uh i guess the other perceived experts in the forum
0: at that point and even still today uh this is there are people new people coming into the the automotive aftermarket that are using the same um the same approach, but it really was simply Scrappiness. <laughs> you know, who was the first person to respond? Who could add the most value? Um, you know, by providing good advice uh, to that particular person to build that rapport and then ultimately earn the sale. So it was just being present, um, you know, as much as possible and and
1: being helpful. So you're just like spending like hours every day just in these forums answering questions.
0: Yeah, that was the the vast majority of of my day at that at that point in time was scouring these forums, waiting for an opportunity uh, again to add value and then hopefully earn a sale.
1: And, and because this was a new approach back then, even and even today it seems like uh, people are still doing it. Uh, but back then, when it was new, how did you know that this would pay off? <sighs>
0: I guess I didn't, you know, I mean, but at that point I had already um, made the decision that I was going to come on full time in this business and and there was really no other option other than to make it work. Um, So at that point, you know, we, we, this was how we got our first sales was uh, by this active participation in the community by adding value. And um, what I did not know was how quickly, that via word of mouth it would spread and how quickly we would grow. Um, I'll tell you, you know, when we opened the doors in July of 2006, I could never have fathomed that we would have done a million dollars in sales, let alone 10 million in 2010, or you know, over 30 million this year. Like this is not something that that I had uh, envisioned from from day one. Um, it's just kind of happened, and I, I feel very fortunate to to be here.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you never imagined that it was scouts to size it is today. What were your goals or, or expectations back then? I think
0: predominantly just freedom. You know, I mean, that was, uh, obviously we talked about what was the catalyst for me to to, to start my own business um, and having this disciplinary meeting at 6.30 a.m. in the morning. I mean, the, the freedom was what was really enticing to me to be my own boss and not have to, um, answer to someone else or or have them tell me what it is that I need to be doing, Um, I got to choose on my own. And and, uh, as I think, I'm sure many other people on this podcast have said before, it resulted in me working 60, 70, 80 hour weeks, but it didn't necessarily feel like work. It wasn't the same as what I was doing, uh, you know, in the consumer electronics world previously.
1: Yeah, I think that your your perspective has been, I think, a little bit different than other typical advice from entrepreneurs, which is that you need to believe what you're trying to accomplish is possible first before you ever get there. You almost went into this, like, not having that huge of expectations as, as what actually happened in reality. I think a lot of people have to believe first, and they push, push super, super, super hard to scale to this size, but... What I guess what, what kind of ingredients went right with, or that you put in correctly, or that went right with what you were doing that kind of let this scale, even though you did not necessarily have the belief that it could get to the size?
0: I don't know that I didn't have the belief that it could get to this size. I guess that wasn't necessarily my goal. Um, you know, I did not, if you would ask me 13 years ago, did I want to be running this 30 million dollar organization with 65 employees and um, have grown to this size. I, I don't know what my answer would have been. Um, it just, I guess I, at that point in my life, I wasn't looking that far forward. Um, you know, I had, had done some analysis. It seemed like it would be a good fit for me to achieve this level of freedom in terms of the work that I was going to do. Uh, I felt that I could make a living by by doing this, uh, I didn't have any, I guess, dreams or aspirations necessarily of getting rich at that point in time. Um, it also, and I mentioned earlier that this was a, a, a hobby and a passion of mine at the time was my, my own personal vehicle and some of the racing um, that I was doing. This business allowed me to support those endeavors. You know, it, it, we had the tools and the infrastructure for us to field a race car and actually accelerate some of my own personal desires in that regard via the business. So that was, I think, another component of it as well, that, that this business enabled me to kind of follow some of my dreams in regards to drag racing um, and, and other aspirations along those
1: lines. So mm-hmm. so let's talk about customer service. I think that this was what was key to kicking things off for you. What were What are some of the key tenets of Great customer service that, that you either learn from your corporate job that you applied, or that you've been learning along the way. Uh, now that you, you uh, with your own business,
0: um, certainly. I think the the biggest things, and I mentioned earlier some of the shortcomings in the industry prior to you know us participating. But it's simply communication and, and um, being able to get a hold of someone, and then that person being kind, (laughs) Um, you know, not, not, not um, seeming annoyed when they get on the phone with you, you know, having, having a knowledgeable person providing an exceptional customer experience on the other end of that phone line or on the other end of that email um, is something that just wasn't prevalent in the automotive aftermarket at that time. So that's really all we did. I mean, it, it's not anything special by today's standards. We we simply, if you emailed us, we emailed you back and we did it in a timely manner. If you called us, we answered the phone. If we didn't and you left a voicemail, we called you back. And when we did call you back, we would either have the answer to your question, or if we didn't have the answer to the question, we would go find it and get it for you. Um, you know, beyond that, some of the The other more technical aspects, when you place an order, when the order shipped, we sent you the tracking number, Um, you know, so you were able to to know when your shipment was going to arrive, that the product had actually shipped. So just, it's really common sense stuff. You know, I wish there was like a, um, you know, some special tool or some special strategy or tactic that we took, but it's just things -hmm. that seem common sense that just simply weren't happening uh, at that time.
1: So now that you are on you know, a much larger scale, I'm sure you have, you have uh, other members of the team interacting with customers and performing customer service, at least the communication aspect. What do you look for in a great, uh, I guess, employee that will uh, perform amazing customer service? Like, What are the key attributes of someone that will meet your standards of, of providing great customer service?
0: So when we're hiring now, and and recruiting has been a challenge for us, um, you know, certainly as we've grown throughout the years, um, we look to hire for uh, alignment with our core values, and our purpose first before we look at the skill set of that individual. So certainly someone with uh, you know, experience in customer service in other industries is going to have some semblance of, of what our requirements would be. Um, but we're looking for people that really are passionate about the automotive aftermarket and then embrace some of our core values, one of which is simply to enhance the customer experience. Um, other ones include work smarter, be driven, embrace the pit crew mentality, uh, which is our our, uh, term for teamwork, I guess, and then do more with less. Those are our five core values that we've established. So looking to see if uh, people in the interview process or the recruiting process can give us examples of where they maybe have aligned with those particular values in previous roles with previous organizations.
1: Hey, Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Got it. So I want to talk about now the stage that you reached. You, reached, you mentioned you reached about like a $10 million uh, revenue point, and you kind of languished here. And, you know, $10 million is nothing to state that, right? So it's, it's a significant amount of revenue. But then you've been able to break past that and scale even higher. Let's talk to us about that. Like, What did you do exactly to... Uh, scale your business uh, past the $10 million mark?
0: Yeah, so that's actually an interesting story and probably um, you know one of the, the things that had the biggest impact on sales and the trajectory of our business from that point moving forward. Um, and essentially what I did is when we landed on the Inc. 500 in 2011, there were, I believe, eight total companies from Minnesota that were also on the Inc. 500. And For some reason that I actually am am still unable to determine to this day, uh, I decided that I was going to reach out to the other uh, business owners for those companies and just try and get to know them and see if I could begin to network. Um, Prior to this time, I had absolutely zero peer networking of of any sort. I actually couldn't have told you uh, the names of another business owner. Uh, at that point in time. So I I don't know what it was that motivated me to reach out, but I I did send an email to all of the other entrepreneurs on the list and I got, uh, one response. And that response was from another, uh, e-commerce entrepreneur locally. And we met up and had lunch and just started to, to, you know, share war stories and best practices and, and things along those lines. And, um, to cut a long story short i guess one day i knew that he had continued growing past that 10 million dollar mark where we had now been struggling for roughly 3 years so i decided to ask him you know what what do you attribute your success to and he, he gave me two uh, i guess tools or um, pieces of advice to, to which he attributed that success. One is an organization called EO or Entrepreneur's Organization that was a peer network that he was a part of locally. And the second was a book called Traction by Gino Wickman that outlines something called the Entrepreneurial Operating System or EOS, which is simply a set of tools to run and scale a business. And these were concepts that I was completely unfamiliar with. Um, But I figured if they were going to work for him in regards to allow him to keep scaling his e-commerce business, that perhaps they would work for me. So I signed up with Entrepreneur's Organization and started to implement the entrepreneurial operating system. And from there, uh, we experienced another round of extremely rapid growth.
1: Guys, okay, so Let's talk about the, the first piece of advice he gave you, which is the entrepreneur organization. So what's, what is this organization about? What, what, do you, what do you, I guess, get out of it? The biggest thing
0: is, and I, and I guess the reason that I did not have a peer network prior to this was that I, I felt like I was in my own little niche um, and that no one would be able to help me in the automotive aftermarket because they weren't going to know anything about the automotive aftermarket um, besides maybe my competitors. And, and I think that that perhaps is true. But what I missed at that point in time was the fact that every business shares certain components of it, whether it's hiring people or the people component of it or finance or fulfillment and operations or marketing or sales. All these things are consistent across any business. And so now I'm I'm in this organization uh, in, in the Minnesota chapter. There's roughly 80 people, uh, locally that I am able to network with on a monthly basis. And we have a much smaller group called a forum where there's uh seven of us now that get together on a monthly basis. And we share from our experience to try and help each other. And so like I said, whether that's, I need to hire someone, you know, what's, what's the appropriate process to do that. Or I'm having a problem with a particular person. How would have you handled these types of situations in the past? Um, I'm looking to do X, Y, or Z in terms of marketing. Uh, wh- what has your experience been with that? Um, I've learned so much from these other entrepreneurs that are part of this group. And the beauty of it is is that I'm able to learn from their past experience without having to do, do it on my own via trial and error. So you know, I, I think I've accelerated my learning and thus the growth of the business, very rapidly just simply based on learning from them versus, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, having to try something and perhaps fail and then learn from that failure and try another course of action. So it's just just being able to tap into these other brilliant minds in this organization uh, I think has saved me countless failures and thousands, you know, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, that would have been wasted in, in if I had just been trying to do it on my own.
1: And because you know entrepreneurs have limited time, I think that when you get to your scale, it makes obvious sense to build a network of people that have had experience that are walking down that path that you're going down. But what if you're just starting out? You have nothing to necessarily offer yet to a network. You don't have anything, a business or anything, but you you aspire to to become an entrepreneur, start your own business. Is it ever too early? I guess to 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 build a network and like how would you even do that if you have if you don't have anything. Essentially, to bring to the table, if that's what you feel.
0: So I don't think that there's anybody out there that doesn't have anything to bring to the table. You know, I think there's always something to learn from from every person on this earth, and and you know whether their ex- previous experience had been in the corporate world, there's going to be something that 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 they would be able to add value, and you know you just have to figure out what that is. Um, I think uh, so. Uh, I was eight years into business before I joined my first peer group. So I don't know that I can speak to this, um, you know, from my personal experience, but there are meetups, you know, whether it's meetup.com or, um, you know, there's another, uh, there's a, uh, another book I read. There's a, a forum from the book I read. It's called the fast lane forum, which is, is basically, um, shares some of my thoughts on entrepreneurship and is another place for people to interact and learn, um, I think there's a lot of venues out there. And, and, you know, I think the step one is just simply to show up and, and express interest and provide value where you can based on the experience that you have to this point. Um, and really just get to know people and you don't know, uh, you know, necessarily what value you're going to be able to provide to them or vice versa. Um, but just starting to build up that network of, you know, if, if you're early on and, you know, you want to find, the people that have already, already where you aspire to be, and, you know, see how you can get close to them and learn from them, I think is a great course of action. As far as exactly how to do that, uh, you know, again, I think it's just going to be scrappiness and just putting yourself out there.
1: Got it. So I think one of the, the I guess the, maybe the two key uh, points of friction that I see a lot with entrepreneurs on their path towards success is one is, not knowing like what is the problem that they're trying to solve and then choose actually implementing the advice that people give you. So for that first one, how do you recognize what is the problem that you are trying to solve that you want to bring to the table to get advice about?
0: So are you, are you referring to the, in, to the network group? What I would bring to them? Yeah. To,
1: to network group, or I guess just in general, how do you identify like what is the problem that's in front of you today that is if you can solve will have the biggest impact on your business. How do you recognize that?
0: yeah, so I, I part of the entrepreneurial operating system that I touched on earlier is a a cadence for meetings and then also a tool called the issues list and so we have internally a list of Issues and also opportunities. I want to be clear on that as well. It's not only the problems, but also the opportunities for the organization um, actually built into uh, an ever growing, you know, dynamic list. And, and we use Trello, uh, which is a software platform to house that list, but it's a constant. Um, reorganization or prioritization of those issues and opportunities. And I do that with my leadership team. We have a leadership team of five at this point, and we vote on what we think to be the biggest opportunity or the biggest issue that needs to be addressed at this point in time within the organization. So I think an individual...
1: So how does something get onto that list?
0: um, So those are things in in a day-to-day course of business. If we see, you know, say I'm listening to a podcast or I'm listening to an audiobook or I'm on um, you know one of these e-commerce based forums that I, I participate in now and I see an idea that I think is worth discussing or could potentially add value I'll simply add it to that issues list and then at that point, if uh, either A, uh, members of my leadership team will vote on that to kind of bring it to the top, or I might have to go and champion that cause. You know, I'm going to say, hey, I really want to talk about this um, because I think it's a great oppor- opportunity for our organization. So I can either champion it and bring it to the top, or uh, it will happen organically if it's, you know, a-, a lucrative enough opportunity or a big enough issue that we need to discuss it.
1: Got it. Now, a system like this, can it be too early for someone to implement this system? it sounds like, you know, you didn't implement this until later in your, in your journey, but can it also be too early where maybe it's too unwieldy or like, uh, strip away some of the benefit of being more agile and not having kind of a system in place? Like, is that true or is that like kind of a, a a myth that, that, that you don't need a system or that, that you, that you don't need a system at first?
0: So I think that this, the entrepreneurial operating system can uh, certain components of it can and sh- I don't want to say should, if from my experience, have been great to implement in our organization uh, for even the smallest of uh, entrepreneurial ventures. And there's some components that at that stage won't apply. So some of the things that wouldn't apply, there's something called an accountability chart, which is essentially the the org chart for the within the organization. If if it's a one-person operation obviously you're gonna be sitting in all of the seats from the president, CEO, to marketing, to finance, to operations, et cetera. As you scale, that's where that accountability chart and defining who's accountable for what operations within the organization becomes um, more important. Uh, One of the other things is there's something called a level 10 meeting, which is a weekly cadence um, for, for a meeting to go over some of the other components of the operating system. Maybe as a one-person operation, that wouldn't be necessarily relevant either. Um, but some of the other components, uh, one of the the big things is something called a scorecard, which is where we have a list of, you know, maybe 15 or 20 different KPIs uh, or key performance indicators in regards to the health of the organization, from sales to margin to overhead, um, you know, fulfillment, things along those lines we track those scorecard metrics on a weekly basis to see if they're trending in the right direction or if they're trending in the wrong direction, then we'll slide it over as an issue and discuss that in that weekly meeting that we have. Um, beyond that, there's another concept uh, called rocks, and this comes from Stephen Covey, um, which is there was a, a demonstration he did with rocks, pebbles, sand, and water. I don't know if you've ever seen seen that video, but it's, it's a good one. Um, these are essentially the biggest priorities for the organization over the next 90 days. So if, if a new entrepreneur was to come to me with a concept for a business that they were going to launch, yes, there's some components of the entrepreneurial operating system that wouldn't be relevant, but at least these two, knowing what the biggest opportunities for your organization are over the next 90 days and then tracking some of your key performance indicators on a weekly basis are two concepts that even the smallest of of ventures should be implementing uh, out of the gates in my opinion
1: got it so i want to back to the the other other i guess half of the question which is around now that you identify the problems how do you actually make sure you implement the solutions or advice that someone gives you how did you get how do you get better at that
0: Within the context of the entrepreneurial operating system, there's two different components there. So uh, we talked about rocks earlier, and that's what uh, we define to be, again, the highest priorities for the business over the next 90 days. And each week, we check in on those rocks. Is that rock on track or is it off track? And if it's off track, we'll talk about it as a team and determine what we need to do to get it back on track so that we're able to accomplish that goal by the end of that 90-day period. Within there, there's smaller components, you know, smaller things that that come up. And uh, those would be referred to as to-dos. So things that would take between one and two weeks to be accomplished, but are also important in regards to moving the organization forward. So you have your rocks that are kind of the big projects over that that are at least a 90-day period of time, and then to-dos that are within a one to two week kind of time frame um, where they need to be accomplished. And again. How do we ensure that they get done? We hold each other accountable with this weekly meeting where we come in and then again, either the rocks are on track or off track and the to-dos are either done or not done. And if your rock's off track, we're gonna talk about it and we're gonna get it back on track and we're gonna hold you accountable that way. If there's a to-do that goes past two weeks and it's not done, we're going to talk about it. Why didn't you get this to-do done um, that we all decided was, you know, one of the most important things for you to do over this last two-week period? So peer accountability via that weekly meeting is where where we've had success.
1: Got it. So once you implemented these systems, how, how quickly did you start seeing the benefits from it?
0: Almost immediately. So we implemented, I, I joined Entrepreneurs Organization and we implemented the entrepreneurial operating system in what was that? 2013, I believe. Um, and so we, we basically, as I mentioned earlier, we had plateaued at 10 million, 10 million, 10 million for three years. Um, the following year, we went to 11.8 and then we went to 15 and then the following year we went to 21. So after three years of stagnant, um, you know, revenue, we experienced very rapid growth and we actually doubled the business in the, within the following three years.
1: And all these systems, are they is the goal to boil down like what is the most impactful thing that every single person should be working on?
0: Yeah, that's the that is the concept behind rocks. And and obviously you have your day-to-day things like, you know, my uh a sales manager is going to need to ensure that the sales team is answering the phone and, and helping our customers. But at the same time, um, you know, we have pretty aggressive growth aspirations for the organization. And in order to achieve those, we're going to have to configure the business for that scale. Um, and yeah, there's gonna be some different project level initiatives that the, that my team is working on as
1: well. Can you give an example of something that maybe you spent a lot of time on before implementing the systems, before like the, the, the rocks concept and something that you now prefer to spend your time on that's more impactful?
0: So before implementing the system, we never talked about what the priorities were in any. You know, it was always what's important right now. We never, we had never outlined what the vision was for the organization and where we were going. Um, You know, not even a year out, let alone now we have a three-year picture for the organization. We actually have uh, a goal. Out to 2024, that's that's our, our BHAG, our big, hairy, audacious goal, which is to get to $100 million in sales. So now we have this, this target that everyone in the organization is aware of where we're heading. And then as we start to break it down from you know, six years out in 2024 to three years out at the end of 2021, we've outlined actually what the business is going to look like at that point in time. And then we get even more granular with our one-year plan as far as what some of our objectives are for the next year. And then we break it down a step further into 90-day rocks. What are we doing in the third quarter of 2019 that's going to move us closer to our objectives for the year? So um, I'm kind of OCD, so I, I really like the way that this works back from 10 years to three years, or it's six years now, sorry, from six years to three years to one year to 90 days. And then... It's up to the individual to figure out what they should be doing today or this week to ensure that they're going to achieve their 90-day rock, and that's going to help move the organization forward. And I think at this point in time, we have to have – so there's 65 people in the organization, and I don't know the exact number, but I would venture a guess that there's over 100 rocks within the organization. So at any point in time within our organization today, there's over 100 initiatives that are are, uh, in process – all with the goal of moving our company closer to those goals that we outlined for one year, three year, and, and six years out.
1: Awesome. Now, what would you say is like the biggest lesson that you've learned last year, either yourself or as an organization that you want to apply this year?
0: So I think one of the biggest things that that we've realized in the past year was actually something that we've been executing on already over the past several years as, uh, as we've experienced significant growth and then maybe even all the way back, you know to those days where we were on the automotive forums, um, trying to interact with the community. and that was basically we defined what we call our proven process. And it's essentially the strategy that we use to enter new vehicle markets, which is the catalyst for growth within our organization. And that's something like I said that we've realizing now, much like core values, that uh, you know, when you d- define them aren't aspirational, they're actually already innate within the organization. This process is something that we've been executing on and just had not written it down. We hadn't put pen to paper. Um, and so now we have a more formal document that's outlining uh, a, what we call the MAP difference. And I think I mentioned it earlier um, this is what I believe differentiates us from the Amazons of the world and what allows a predominantly e-commerce venture to be able to compete uh, you know not only compete but be fairly successful and continue to grow at a, at a pretty rapid rate.
1: Awesome so thank you so much for your time Chris so modern automotive performance which is at MAperformance.com again thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.